contest between Pharaoh and the Lord was almost over. Abundant opportunities had already been given to Pharaoh to repent of his wicked ways and to let Israel go, but he would not. Warning after warning, plague after plague had been sent. But what we read time and again is that Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened it further. Now, one more judgment was to come. It's the climax of the other nine, and it would be the worst of all. It would cause the greatest sorrow if you look at the words of verse 6. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. And I put it to you that we have seen the sorrow already through the other plagues, and how it caused affliction. But here was one coming, in which... It could not be measured to the ones before. From the palace of the king of of Egypt to the most humble cottage right throughout the land. And then it will be seen the folly of fighting against God and the uselessness of resisting Jehovah. Men and women, there are many verses that would underline that somber truth. How it is futile to fight against the Lord. If I can just give you one by example. Isaiah 14 and 27 says this, For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? No matter if the king be the most powerful in the earth, yet those that walk in pride God is able to abase. And surely if you turn to Daniel 4, you consider Nebuchadnezzar, you have an example of a case in point. And although Pharaoh may have said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And although Pharaoh might have stated, I know the Lord, I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. But now the time had arrived when all this defiance was seen as futile. And he would be glad to see the back of Israel. This final plague was the severest of all. For a mightier king than that of the king of Egypt was to visit the land. He's called in the scriptures the king of terrors. It is the last enemy. And he would lay his hand, his unsparing hand, upon the firstborn of every house. This truly was a matter of life and death. There was nothing that Pharaoh nor the people could do. They were helpless. He may have sought to keep Moses and Aaron from his presence by issuing a threat against them. But there was no withstanding of the angel of death. Wealth nor science could not provide deliverance from this. The long-suffering of God had reached its limits. And nothing but his holy anger now was to be displayed. And that anger would burst forth with irresistible might so that widespread would be the lamentation. It is understood that there is more spoken about this final plague than any of the other plagues throughout the rest of Scripture. One reason for that lies in the fact that therein is found a glorious illustration in the Old Testament of the message of the Gospel. And that will become more obvious when we get into the detail 
of the final plague, as you'll find it in chapter 12. And we'll come to that again. But our purpose this morning is merely to consider the preliminaries to this final plague. I want you to notice firstly here the promise. You know, of course, throughout these chapters, we've noted how God was to give various promises to Moses. And when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And the next promise he receives is no exception, as you'll find it in verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. One more plague upon Pharaoh. The promise concerned the plagues being finished. The end of the battle was near. Just one more plague would be sent upon Pharaoh and upon this land of Egypt. The tenth plague would be the last. And the most severest of all, as I've already stated. Those in the palace were not one what any more secure than those in the most humblest of dwellings. The death angel could not be stopped. And men and women, is it not a reminder to every one of us that we're not here forever? That there is a boundary that has been set. There's a boundary that has been appointed that none of us can pass over. And Job was certainly well aware of that. Because if I can read to you Job 14 in the words of verse 5, he says, Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee, thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. I'm not speaking about man. The boundary is set. The number of months God has appointed. It is appointed unto men once to die. The only manner in which some will not have to pass through the veil of death is if the Lord comes back first. And either way, there's a necessity to be ready and to be prepared. Someday the same will be said of each one of us as was promised to Moses. Just one breakfast more, one evening meal more, just one more day's work, just one more Sabbath service, one more birthday, one more anniversary. Isn't it a blessing to be able to leave that all in the hands of the Lord? For he alone knows the end from the beginning. The promise was of the plague's been finished. But then go on, you'll notice the promise was that Pharaoh would let them go. As a result of this tenth plague, his resolve would finally be broken. And God said to Moses, afterwards, he will let you go hence. This time, he would actually be good to his word. He wouldn't recant on what he had said. He wouldn't go back on it as he had done so on many previous occasions. He let you go, Moses. And the promise went even further. For God said to Moses in verse 1, When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out from hence altogether. And I want you to home in on that little word thrust that is used. It's a very strong word. It comes from the word which literally means to drive out, to cast out, to expel. 
Pharaoh would in effect order the Israelites to leave. Does not that emphasize to us the power of God to fulfill his purposes? Even though men oppose them, he can cause men to do with great zeal what they opposed previously and for a long time because that's what Pharaoh was about. He didn't want to obey the command of the Lord and he stood against those commands of God. But in the end, he actually drives them out of the land. He actually expels the Israelites. How foolish then for man to fight against the will of God. It is futile. It is one that will ultimately end in defeat. This promise was given to Moses for one very good reason. And that is the preparations that needed to be made in order to leave. You see, Moses was being forearmed so that he could prepare the Israelites for what was about to happen. That is what the next couple of verses have to do with. The exodus would come all of a sudden. They had to be ready for the moment that the order came for them to leave Egypt. There would be no time to spare, nor would there be time to get things in order. Now was the time. They had to be ready for when the order came. And we will see more of the preparation in the chapter to come, of course. For example, they had to wear the shoes on their feet. And that gives us, does it not, the very vivid illustration. There had to be that preparedness about them. They had to be in the state of readiness. And men and women, is there not an application even to our own hearts? As Israel were to be ready for their exodus, so do we need to be ready for our exodus from this world or for the second coming of the Lord Jesus. It is something that is promised, of course, throughout the Scriptures. He said to his disciples in the upper room in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. We read in the final book of the Bible, Revelation, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast. The promise is sure. And we each need to be in the state of readiness for that time when it will happen. And none of us know the day, of course. For like Israel, it will occur suddenly. The trump of God shall sound, and Christ shall return, and every eye shall see him. There will be no time then to set things in order about your soul. That's why the scriptures say, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And I believe there's a set of things to happen before the Lord does come back. But men and women, we all believe, whatever our views might be of the last days, we all believe that the Lord is coming back again. He's coming back personally and it will be sudden. There needs to be a readiness. But what is true of Christ's coming, you know, is also the case of death. It often pays a visit suddenly. You look at the obituary. You look at the funeral times and often in brackets you will see suddenly without any warning. It is something, therefore, that you cannot procrastinate upon. The Lord has given ample warning and opportunity for souls to make ready for the day of their departure. The message of the gospel, which is your only hope you have heard, there's one whom you need. If you're not saved this morning, 
who has already conquered death and the grave. And the promise is that all in him shall live also. You see, he said those words to Martha in John chapter 11 and 25. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. It's Christ you need. What have you done with him? Have you heeded the warnings of God to your soul and made ready? That preparation you can make even this morning. We must say before leaving this thought, however, that the promise of Moses received now from the Lord must have been a great encouragement. Just one more plague. And then Israel will believe it. And God informed Moses of this because there was much that he had to do in connection with this final plague. It wouldn't be easy. Oftentimes the tasks that are laid down for us aren't easy. But often in the difficult tasks, it is then that God encourages by giving his promises. And Moses had stood before Pharaoh two or three, four times previous to that, and his heart was hardened. And he wouldn't let them go. When God comes this time, he says, just one more. One more. And Pharaoh will let you go. And he will thrust you out. What an encouragement that would have been to Moses as he had the difficult task before him. Men and women, ever look to those promises that God has given in his word to help you. To be faithful the task at hand. And so there we have the promises. I want you to notice the particulars. The preparation for the nation of Israel was in terms of being ready. That man getting gold and silver and precious jewels off their neighbors, the Egyptians, for the journey that was before them. One thing to bear in mind If I can draw your attention to the words of verse 2, it says, Speak now in the ears of the people and let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. What do they need gold and silver for in the wilderness, you might ask? Well, of course, we come to the instruction about the tabernacle. And God gave the dimensions and God gave the materials and those things were already in the possession of the Israelites the gold that was found in the tabernacle, etc. But you look at verse 2. It says, Let every man borrow of his neighbor. And if you take that word in our language today, it carries the thought of returning something later on. You go to your neighbor, can I borrow something? Well, he gives you that, or they give you that, in order that you might bring it back again. I've given some books, I've borrowed books to some people and become good librarians because I've never seen them again. I suppose we're all guilty. Borrow in our language means you take it for a while but you bring it back. And so the critic and the modernist will go to that verse and they will suggest that God has been dishonest here because Israel weren't coming back. But the Hebrew word for borrow is different. It gives the idea, in actual fact, it is translated 
ask or beg 162 other times in the Old Testament. And that is the thought is in mind. They were to ask of their neighbors. They were to request of those things which were needful. And God touched their hearts that they found favor with the Egyptians. You see, he's no man's debtor. He's able to supply all our need according to his riches and glory. What I want you to see is the grace of God demonstrated. The details of this final plague are given to Pharaoh. It's a continuation of the previous chapter with Moses still in the court of Pharisee last. And we emphasized it the last time, the last verse. Moses said, I have spoken well, I will see thy face again no more. And you might then suggest, well, how could he hear the tenth, the tenth plague, this eleventh chapter? Well, the sense of verse 1 said, and the Lord had said unto Moses. Moses was still in the presence of Pharaoh. And if you go to verse 8, I think that becomes clear. It says in all the, uh, the, uh, the last part of it, it says, and he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. We'll deal with that in a moment. He was still in the presence of Pharaoh. Continuing on, forget about the chapter division there. He was still there in Pharaoh's company. It was then that God had said unto him about this final plague, and Moses in turn was to relay it before Pharaoh. With Pharaoh hearing of what was to happen, does that not again speak to us of the grace of God? He was undeserving of hearing any more warnings or given any more opportunities to repent. How long suffering is God's grace? But it was to be the last time. It would be extended to Pharaoh. It was the last chance to repent and to let Israel go. But as he had done before, so he does again. And he rejects God's grace. And the outcome, of course, was the terrible slain of the firstborn, as well as his army been drowned in the Red Sea. Now consider with me the righteous anger of Moses, as I read with you in verse 8. He went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. There are some who would say that a believer should never be angry. If you disagree with such people, then oftentimes they become angry themselves and they show forth their hypocrisy. I mean, being in a protest in Londonderry against the Sodomite march in that city. And, you know, they come across as all lovely people. How do you want to see the anger up in them then when you stand against them? But there are verses that would indicate to us that we shouldn't be angry. I want to show you a couple. If you come with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31. It says, and Paul's writing to the believers, of course, here in Ephesus and church there, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Turn over to Colossians. Church in Colossians chapter 3 this time, and the words are verse 8. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, Filthy communication out of your mouth. He's not speaking to the unbeliever. He's speaking to the child of God. Those are verses that might indicate to us that we're, the child of God is not to be angry. But then I want to take you back to Ephesians. Ephesians 4 and verse 26 says this. Be ye angry and sin not. 
How can we reconcile these verses? Be ye angry and sin not. There's such a thing as a righteous anger. And that was what Moses demonstrated in this instance. He was angry at sin. Matthew Henry, the commentator, said, to be angry at nothing but sin is the way not to sin in anger. Moses had got good reason to be angry at the treatment of Pharaoh against the nation of God at his past rejection of God's orders to let them go at the sufferings that the Egyptians had to experience because of his refusal to obey God's word at being unmoved at this now the news of the most terrible final plague there was plenty for Moses to be stirred up with a righteous indignation against and the Lord did the same when he walked amongst the temple and he saw it become a marketplace we read that he overturned the tables of the money changers He was angry at sin. There's a righteous anger. Men and women, I wonder, are we guilty of not being angry at sin? We become so conditioned with the things of the world that we we just let sin pass us by and we're not angry, we're not moved, we're not stirred up against it. We ought to be upset about the evil and the sin that abounds in our province and in our town and in our district. There's nothing commendable at being passive at those things. Indeed, the one who shows a righteous anger at sin is one who is showing love and compassion for that which is right or that which is true and that which is holy. And Moses had a righteous anger here. You'll notice there was the appointed time here. Verse 4, Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, about midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt. Pharaoh was informed by Moses of when this last plague from God would strike. There's the appointed day. There's the appointed hour when the death angel would come against the land. It was at midnight and the firstborn would be slain. Pharaoh was being informed of the terrible plague of judgment. It ought to have caused him to bend the knee and to have earnestly petitioned God that it might be stopped. It was a terrible plague, but it was a fitting one. Remember, of course, the cruelty that the Egyptians subjected the Israelites to, which included killing the firstborn, killing the uh, babes, the baby boys uh, in the River Nile. Don't forget that. It's fitting because of the oppression that the Egyptians had brought upon Israel for years. And now God will judge those who persecuted his people. The appointed day was approaching. And so it is when God shall judge the world in righteousness. By that man whom he appointed, in that he hath raised him from the dead, he hath committed all judgment unto his son. But I want you to see the protection as well. For it's noted before Pharaoh that there would be a difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Verse 7, But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Israel would be protected against this final plague, unlike the Egyptian homes. The means of their protection would be by the blood The blood of the Lamb. We'll look at that more in chapter 12, obviously. 
When the death angel saw the blood, he would pass over them. Absolutely no harm would come to the nation of Israel who were sheltering neath the blood. Not even a dog would move its tongue against them in the night in which they would leave Egypt. That's what the Lord says in verse 7. And you just uh, imagine that. You just picture in your mind's eye after midnight there will be the sudden call to get out uh, and to leave and not even a dog will move its tongue. You see, men and women, just as God controlled the lions, just as he rendered them harmless before Daniel, so the dogs will be rendered dumb when God's people will be on the move. Does that not comfort the people of God to know the eternal security that we enjoy in Christ, just as we've been singing earlier on, see if in the arms of Jesus. To know that nothing will come against us unless the Lord permits it. That's how safe and secure the people of God are. It also illustrates to us that great verse of Romans 11 and 22. It is a verse that simply says this, Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God, and them which fail severity but toward thee goodness. If I continue in his goodness, otherwise I shall also be cut off. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. The goodness of God is seen in Israel were exempt from this judgment. The severity of God is noted in the slaying of the firstborn of the Egyptians. We could say that Israel deserved the wrath of God just as much as the Egyptians did. After all, they too had sinned. After all, they too had rebelled against the Lord. But it is according to God's good pleasure. It's according to His sovereign grace that He made the difference. And He still does. The question is asked. Who maketh thee to differ from another? The answer is God. And if God has made a difference in your life, then you ought to thank Him. You ought to praise Him. You ought to want to worship Him and give Him all the glory. For He has saved you. Maybe your neighbor next door is not. Who maketh thee to differ one from another? It's God. As one of his children, you're even more secure than the Israelites were. For your soul is protected by the precious blood of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're sheltered under, underneath the blood. That's why the apostle could say, closing Romans chapter 8, verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, inseparable union, safe and secure. What a particular blessing that is. One final word I want to leave with you, and that is the review. Because the closing couple of verses, 
Our soul may be looked upon as a review or a practice up until this point in time before we actually enter into the details given of the Passover night. And any such review has to include the failure of Pharaoh. Verse 9, Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. He may have been healed as a great man in the eyes of the world as many are today. But before God, he was nothing more than an abject failure. God knew him. And he knew that he would harden his heart. And you know it is good for us to understand that God knows each one of us better than we know ourselves. The opening words of Psalm 139 will be sufficient to prove his omniscience, his all-knowing. The psalmist says in verse 2, Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my line down and art acquainted with all my ways. First five or six verses there speak about how God knows us. And is it any wonder? Because if you read on in that chapter in verse 13, he says, My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lower parts of the earth. It's not a fetus. It's a child in the womb. And God knows her every parts, Every one of them. Verse 16, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. The Lord knew us before we saw the light of this world. He knew the day in which we would be born. He knows everything about us. But the failure of Pharaoh is also seen in that his defiance and his rebellion was no match for the power of God. He may have rebelled against God, but God was to use that rebellion to glorify himself through the plagues which came upon Egypt. You see, the wrath of God is able to praise the Lord. The review furthermore also shows the faithfulness of his servants. You look at the start of the words of verse 10. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. Stands in a great contrast to the behavior of Pharaoh in the previous verse. He wouldn't hearken unto the Lord. Moses and Aaron, they did all these wonders before Pharaoh. Doing all that God commands is the kind of faithfulness that God desires. Remember this, that partial obedience is essentially disobedience. Being faithful is to do all. The comments of God are so different. With Pharaoh, he was unfaithful. Moses and Aaron, they were faithful. While Pharaoh was rebellious and rejects God, Moses and Aaron, they accept God. They're obedient to his word. Pharaoh scorns God. Moses and Aaron, they respect God. When Moses comes onto the narrative, it's Pharaoh who has the superiority. It's Pharaoh who has the supreme power and position. But now it's all over. The tables are turned. Look at the words of verse 8. But all these thy servants shall come down unto me and bow themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out, and all the people that follow thee, and after that I will go out. Even Pharaoh's servants are seen, and we read there in that previous verses or two, that they respected Moses, that they give honor to him. 
You see, the Lord says, they that honor me, I will honor. Remember that employee. You might stand against what the other employers are doing, but they that honor the Lord, he'll honor you. If you do that which is right. That's the sort of comment that we desire to hear from the Lord one day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, there's also the fate of Pharaoh, as you see at the end of it there. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. He hardened his heart against God's word again. He hardened his heart against the word both before and during the plagues. His judgment for doing so was to have his heart hardened even more by God. After this, there's only one more time in which the Scriptures will read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You'll find it if you turn over to chapter 14 of Exodus. It is the time where it causes him to pursue the Israelites. And that meant pursuing them across the Red Sea that had opened up before them. Look at verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. There's the last time he hardened his heart to follow after the Israelites. In other words, it was to his own destruction as they were drowned in the depths of the Red Sea. And dear people, is there not a warning therein as I close this morning? Lest some of you would cultivate a hard heart by continually rejecting the grace of God in salvation and your fate be the same as that of Pharaoh himself, one of destruction, one of being lost for all eternity. And so I make no apology for closing. I read unto you Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13. It says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 15, While it is said today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. That's a dangerous thing to harden your heart. It's a dangerous thing to reject the Lord's warnings time and time and time again. I pray that you will not do that, but you might seek the Lord while he may be found. You might call upon him while he is near, and you can do that this morning. A final plague. May the Lord bless his word to each of our hearts this morning.